Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, and Karen Farneman. Ahead on Fast, a Beijing bounce. Chinese stocks rebounding a bit after an ugly week of selling, but two of the biggest names of the, on the mainland are not coming along for the ride. Why are Baidu and Baba getting left behind? Plus, warning signs flashing in the commodities market. The off-the-charts move in nickel, aluminum, and other metals hitting the balance sheets of the big commodity houses. How worried should investors be about a blow-up in this space? And from meme stock to mining stock, why AMC Entertainment is literally digging for gold. Lights, camera, mining helmet? <laughs> we start off with the countdown to what will be the first Fed rate, likely be, I should say, the first Fed rate hike in more than three years. The central bank expected to announce an increase to its target rate in just about 21 hours. The decision comes as Chairman Jerome Powell tries to manage a delicate balancing act on one side, a strong consumer, low employment, unemployment, healthy corporate balance sheets, but on the other, Elevated commodity prices, new snarls in the supply chain, and re-emerging COVID fears. And we can't forget the other wild card, the war in Ukraine, which could further fuel inflation and supply chain problems. So, guys, is it time for Powell to go full hawk? Brian Kelly, I'm going to toss it over to you. The good things that we mentioned will say, you know what, the economy can handle it. The economy right now needs it. What do you say? Yeah, I think the one thing that the Fed has done a tremendous job at is their communication channel. And they have done everything to tell the market that they are going to raise rates regardless of what's going on geopolitically. I mean, the biggest indicator for me was yesterday the Wall Street Journal had an article and they laid out three different scenarios. Basically, the three scenarios were the Fed raises a little, the Fed raises a little bit more, and then the Fed raises a ton to really crush inflation. I think right now what they need to do is get their credibility back when it comes to inflation, and they're going to worry about unemployment and the rest of the economy later. Now, the question is, I think 25 basis points is baked in. The market's pricing in seven hikes over the next year. I would put the probability of that happening, I think, very low, close to zero, because I think something breaks before they get even close to that. Breaks meaning recession? What does that mean, breaks? Yeah, breaks breaks meaning... Breaks meaning recession uh, will probably be the most one. You know, for me, I'm looking at ingress investment grade bonds. When you start to see those spreads blow out, they haven't quite got there yet. But I would say recession is the most likely scenario as they raise rates. If they raise them, maybe let's call it 50 basis points. I think that probably causes a pretty severe recession. So I agree with everything BK was saying, particularly on the communicating. I think he's mm-hmm. done an outstanding job. So we all know a raise is baked in, just a question of how much 25 seems to be the consensus and how many times. I think they've gotten a little bit of cover with the Ukraine situation because it's really a wild card, right? And we've seen what it does to commodities and we've seen uh, supply chain issues as a result of it. So I think they actually have a little bit of cover to be a little less hawkish if they want. So to me, it also doesn't matter whether it's six, five, six, seven. Actually, that doesn't matter. I feel like what they do with the balance sheet mm-hmm. will be more of an issue for 
credit markets and rates, and then maybe that sort of spiral that that BK sort of talked about. Do you start to see, uh, you know, the bond market really get hit? That, to me, is a risk, but it's somewhere down the line. Right, right. Guy, it's amazing that we live in a world where we could be talking about a Fed that could go extremely dovish or full-on hawkish. I mean, (laughs) this is the spectrum of of possibilities we live with um, because of the circumstances of, of, namely, inflation. I mean, that inflation, the inflation picture has just gotten untenable in some ways. Yeah, but... You know, inflation is what apparently they were longing for all along. So when I've said it, you know, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. And now we got it and we got it in spades. So it's interesting. A couple of things. You know, BK is probably right. But my pushback would be, and I'm curious what Steve thinks, Steve Leisman, you know, if this economy, market, whatever, intertwined, can't take um, 225-point rate increases, then we got bigger problems than I think uh, any of us realize, number one. Number two, I think they went for this Federal Reserve. I think they went full hawk in late November, early December. I think that's about as hawkish as you'll ever hear them, in my opinion. And I don't think they've really backed off from that. Correctly so. And the, to Karen's point, and again, I'm not suggesting I'm right. This is just a counter argument. If peace were to break out tomorrow, hopefully that's the case, that's inflationary. And if this thing continues along the path that it's currently on, that's inflationary. So in my world, either outcome just it continues to push the inflation button. So, you know, we'll see. I do think they've done a masterful job in talking to the market without question. And the mandate of making sure the market continues to go higher, they've done an extraordinary job at, obviously, until recently. We'll see how it plays out. I think I brought up an interesting point in terms of whether or not uh, this economy can handle 225 basis point hikes. I, I don't know if it's a question, Tim, of what, if the economy can handle it. I would think that the economy could handle it, but maybe the markets would not be able to handle it. No, I think the markets can handle it, too. I think the markets need it. And, and any sign that they're going to have to move slower will, will be disastrous for the markets. I, we, we can't hear something tomorrow that says, you know, we're going to be on pause. Um, I, I don't want to hear, Fed, that that's uh, is, is dovish as they are. And, and, and as we've all said for the last few weeks and at different times, more or less, there's been ebb and flow. But we priced in six to seven hikes. Look at the, the deck 22 Fed futures curve. You can see it, you know, up around 183 and change. So there's no question that the market has been you know, hard at work while the Fed has been jawboning and everyone's been right. Guys nailed it. I mean, they went full hawk. Not faux hawk, by the way, full hawk. Um, and, and so I think you have a case here where, where uh, the market wants to see some of this. But the other uh, kind of storyline here is that this is a Fed that really, since they flooded the market with, with QE, especially after the financial crisis and, and QE1, um, you know, they actually were very successful in raising inflation. If you look uh, at QE1 through QE4, and each time they, they actually cranked it up when you at least do various measures of, of, of asset prices. Now, the, the, the question really is, can the Fed do as much as they want to? And that's what we're really most worried about. And we're all worried about them also, uh, you know, knocking the market, uh, but knocking the economy because they're moving too quickly. But uh, unfortunately, I think we're all also looking at the history where the Fed, after massive rate cuts, can never hike enough to get you back to an equilibrium. Um, Guy, it seems like the, the problem that the Fed has, or I don't want to say the problem, but the situation that the Fed finds itself in is that it has communicated every step of the way so, you know, openly and transparently 
that they are now in a box. As Tim had mentioned, if, if you see a Fed that goes dovish, more dovish than expected, people will panic. If you see a Fed that goes more hawkish, people will panic. They will jump to conclusions about what that says about the economy. So you know what? Full steam ahead, 25 basis points. D- done. Why, why are we even talking about this, right? <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, I don't think they're going to be more hawkish than they currently are. I, I, just don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think, to Tim's point, I think if they were to pivot again and somehow get more dovish based on, again, the geopolitical things, market might like that for a couple days, but I think that would be, again, just my opinion, extraordinarily problematic going forward. I mean, I think they've set forth the right course, and I just think they have to stay the course. But again, this is someone in me that thought Jerome Powell in October of 2018 was on the right course. And I'll die on that hill. You know, I'd love that, Jerome Powell. And he got browbeat by the administration at the time. And the fact that the market went down 19.9% from basically Halloween, boo, until Christmas Eve of that year. I think the Fed has got to sort of bite the bullet and not care what the market does. It's not their mandate. We oh, seem to think it is, right? The horse right? is out of the barn on that. I mean, well, that, that I, I, we ship gotta, sailed long ago to mix all my metaphors together here. I, I think we got to get the horse back in the barn, right? It's to, to uh, maximum employment and inflation, right? right. Not the market. And to, that's to Guy's point that somehow in 2018 they were hijacked by the market. I think that that time is over now. They've got to do, even if the market doesn't like it, too bad. I mean, if it were really, if it really said forget about the market, we don't care, they would have hiked already, I would think. They, they would have hiked in January. They would have done, I'll be sort of like, eh, no. <laughs> Why not be No, I mean... No, I mean, I think I think Karen's right. I think the dynamic has changed a lot. We have a different administration where Main Street matters more than Wall Street right now. I think the Fed doesn't care a dime about the market at this point in time. All they care about is getting inflation down from Main Street so gas prices aren't up. So when the midterm elections come around, they actually get to keep their position and the Democrats win. I think that is the plan. They could care less about the market. It is a matter of different administrations. I think the Fed was pretty hawkish. I mean, they've got the market down 20%. Now, I don't think they really care that it's down here. The only thing they'll care about now is, like I said, if something breaks, if the credit market gets too expensive, the housing market happens to seize up. Those things that matter to Main Street is what I'm looking at for breakage. But I don't think the Fed cares about the S&P 500 anymore at all. Hmm. Let's get to Steve Leisman. Bring him into this conversation. Steve, I know you've been listening very intently to this. What is expected tomorrow is 25 basis points. How do you think the Fed is going to telegraph the next move? Yeah, that's a good question, Melissa. And I think listening to the conversation, I think the way to think about tomorrow's meeting is a day when the Fed puts its cards down and we figure out, did the market guess those cards correctly? Let's think about it. There's 25 basis points tomorrow, and the 25 basis points in May and or April, May and June, the 25, the, the next 100 basis points, that's already done. You guys are out there living. Let me just put this down. You're already living with 130 basis points of tightening. Tomorrow's quarter point is done. The next two are done. We're done all the way through. We priced in six months. Pretty much done. You're already living with that. What's happening tomorrow is 
The, Powell's going to put his cards down. The Fed's going to put their cards down. And we're going to talk about the six months or the year after that. That's really what the debate and the question is about. You're already investing and figuring out things. I'm talking to CFOs that are living with higher rates right now. Uh, when you talk about what the Fed has done, it has engineered a tightening of financial conditions. The financial conditions are tighter if you look at the stock market levels. They're tighter when you look at fixed income levels. So tomorrow we look at the forecast of the Federal Reserve, and then we hear how Powell attenuates or does not those forecasts to say this is where we're going. My best guess on this is he doesn't see any more than you guys see through the fog of war here and the uncertainty created by what's happening with with supply and inflation. So what I think he does is he tells you, hey, you guys are probably right and okay for the next six months. Beyond that, I'm going to come back in June or so. Well, we'll be back before that, but fundamentally in June. And I'm going to tell you about the next six months after that, because frankly, I can't see what's going on right now beyond that. How does that make you feel as an investor, Tim? Six months is okay, but after that, we have got no idea. <gasps> well, it makes me feel fine because I, I don't think the market needs to have an idea out a year and a half. I think the market needs to understand really where, where we're going to be. And, and Steve's point on the Fed is, is ultimately not in a position to understand the dynamics. They're going to tell us that they're data dependent. This is that communication factor. Um, I, I just, you know, a couple things here. I, I think this is a, an independent Fed. I want to believe our Federal Reserve is very independent. And I know people think that once Powell got reappointed, he turned into the hawk. That he is, by the way. Check out the history. And I know Steve knows this because he, he studies the Fed. And, and you know, this is a, a Fed chairman who I think is more hawkish than his two predecessors. And I think it's something the market should think about. But we get back to a place here. The one thing I'm the most worried about, especially back to the labor market, is, you know, you walk around and you, you try to uh, go out to dinner. You try to uh, do various things on a reopening trade. And you realize that the labor force, there's not enough people working. I think in six months, those jobs aren't going to be there for these people. I'm telling you, I, I think we're in a place here between inflation and between where the headwinds in the economy are from the Fed and credit. I actually think that the labor market, which the Fed so very well targets, is going to be their biggest issue. Steve, it's interesting. You mentioned um, the markets priced it in. I agree with you that the bond market is priced it in. And I know your answer in some form is going to be, you know, that's why you guys do this show. But just your opinion, do you think the equity markets have priced all this in? You know, I, I do think so. Um, I think when you saw the shine come off of those crazy multiple Nasdaq stocks, um, and then you had a, obviously a rotation out of the we are going to be staying at home forever stocks uh, or valuations on stocks to to sort of more reasonable valuations and some of those uh, those things that went that went nuts during the pandemic. Um, I think the market's adjusting, and if Powell's done anything well, I believe he's engineered this in a way that doesn't stop the market from falling, but keeps the market from having a systemic risk, taper tantrum type issue. You know, I think he's going to say, look, I'm sorry that, that you guys bid it up here and, you know, you kind of did it on my, uh, on my say-so, which is I think that's a problem ultimately. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, he's had this long ramp up to this moment here where he's first hiking rates. But I forget who was saying it earlier. The Fed has started this back... You know, at least in November, I think I was on this show, right, when we had that argument on mm -hmm. November 29th or 30th, 
when when Powell made that pivot, and that was a hard pivot, and the market has reacted. And so we are well down the road. You're not going to be um, going into the cold water for the first time tomorrow. You guys are already, I don't know, maybe ankle to knee deep in where you're going. Um, and then the question is, do we go straight to 2%? Do we have to go to 2.5%? It's all going higher. And the question is the time period for the adjustment. I think Powell is cognizant of that. I think he's cognizant of the idea that he doesn't want to have a major hiccup. He wants to give the market time to adjust. And uh, I think Guy was talking about, yeah, this market can take a quarter. It can take a half. It's already taken one and a half. It's already pretty much in there. What is the, the two years, 130 basis points higher than when I was on here on 1129. I actually marked that date. The five year, which, by the way, right now, if you're a business and you're going into the market to get funding, you've got to deal with the spread over the five year because that's sort of a place where businesses does business at that, that, that five year rate. That's 100 over. So you're already dealing with that. It's in the economy. I think that's kind of good news if you're thinking about getting together. But you got to say, okay, all that is true. We know that. It's like we, we can understand it. But the problem becomes uh, understanding how this next wave of price hikes works its way through the system. Does it create a drag on demand such that we have this high inflation and this issue of lower growth? Steve, good to see you. I'm sure we'll see you tomorrow. Lots. <laughs> Steve Leesman. Big day tomorrow. Going to be fun. Yep. Huge day. Ryan Kelly. How do you think tomorrow's going to Big play day. out? Uh, so, listen, the market is set up actually for a relief rally. If you look at, we've priced in, as Steve said, we've priced in an awful lot. As long as Powell doesn't screw this up, I actually think the market could be in for a relief rally. Now, relief rallies and bear market rallies, if that's what you want to call this, can be actually pretty extreme. So, I think there's the potential for that. Let's put it this way. I would not want to be short this market going into the meeting tomorrow as a trading position. I think there's volatility either way, but I think that they're not going to give us the full information. Steve talked about all their cards on the table. I don't know that we'll hear about balance sheet issues. If we do, right. that could move the market a lot. Sticking with the Fed ahead of the Fed decision tomorrow, check out CNBC Pro. They've got one piece on one sector that could be a standout in a rate hiking cycle. Coming up, China stocks bouncing back. The KWEB ETF showing signs of life, but not everyone's coming along for the ride. Plus, is there trouble brewing in some commodity houses? Our own Brian Kelly is breaking down what he sees bubbling under the surface. More on that when Fast Money returns. Don't go anywhere. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, custom 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Between regulatory risks, tensions over Russia and a new wave of Omicron on the mainland, stocks in China have been getting slammed in recent weeks. But after a few furious days of selling, a number of these names are bouncing back. Take a look at Tencent Music surging nearly 15 percent today. Billy Billy up more than 11 percent. JD up seven. That helped the KWeb ETF break a three day losing streak. But two big names are not coming along for the ride. We're talking Baidu and Alibaba, Karen. You've been taking yeah. it on paper. They may on, look like bargains. I know. I was looking at Baba last night in the 10 PE, and that doesn't even include the cash, which probably gets it down to like seven or eight. And that doesn't even include their ownership stakes in other companies. It was like valuation porn looking at the <laughs> Alibaba. I mean, it's just crazy. However, all that having been said, having been burned in it, Really not knowing, are they going to be unable to trade? I mean, so I got to stay away no matter how attractive it looks on paper. Tim, why do you think these giants are being left out? I, I, I mean, I, this is a family show. I thought I heard a naughty <laughs> word. So, um, you know, you have a case here where, in fact, if you if you look at where J.P. Morgan is on Alibaba, at least the Hong Kong version, uh, which it's important to point out that if some of these stocks, despite the regulatory risks, in the U.S., if they trade in Hong Kong, uh, U.S. ADR should be fungible. Uh, and, and, but they, J.P. Morgan's got it at seven times uh, 23. So uh, I think part of the dynamic, and let's be clear, this is not why the stocks are trading where, but China consumption has a major headwind to it. We know China is slowing. We know their central bank is one of the only central banks in the world that is actually cutting rates. And I think that's built into some of the consumption dynamics in the e-commerce. But this is all about Big Brother. Uh, Alibaba is is it's a very sad story. I still have uh, a position, a much smaller position, one I've actually traded down significantly. But it's hard for me to sell here. Um, In fact, I I actually think that at some point uh, China has to do something to instill confidence. It's a China off right now. It's it's a de-risking China trade. And that's something that you can see in the EEM. You can see it in the K-Web. These are big proxies and big liquid vehicles that are being sold and and it creates opportunity. It's a sad story for a lot of investors out there, Tim, including Masayoshi-san, whose SoftBank has lost $25 billion during this tech downdraft. It's got a big stake in Alibaba. And that's been sort of also hanging over the shares, not really helping matters. The, the idea that perhaps SoftBank will, will have to cut some of the, the winners, some of their stakes in the winners in order to raise funds, Guy. What do you make of, of this sector? Yeah, well, we should have asked the ghost of Potter Stewart to come on the show tonight, so maybe he would be able to explain exactly what Karen was speaking of. I encourage you folks to go to your Google machine to figure that one out. But I'll say this about Alibaba. You know, you go back to Halloween a few years ago, boo, again, uh, when it was a $310 stock-ish. It's come off 80%. But along the way, Mel, as we have pointed out, there have been a number of mind-numbing rallies. And, you know, given the volume it traded today, I think it traded north of 85 million shares, about three and a half times normal volume. I would submit, and you can fast-fire to me tomorrow, it's happened before, that we're on the precipice of another one of those rallies. Doesn't mean we're out of the woods, but you could easily see this stock go up 20 25% over a two-day period and still be in this significant downtrend. You'll know it when you see it. 
going back to your reference. Um, Brian Kelly, Alibaba used to be the you know, the example, the epitome, the, you know, the poster child of the growing Chinese economy, right? It's got its cloud business, too. I mean, it is the Amazon of China, effectively. So there's something there, isn't there? So maybe this is not just P-O-R-N. Could it be a value? (laughs) Uh, Well, it could be a value, but the problem is the government doesn't have your back. So you might have the absolute best trade. To Karen's point, You might look at this thing and say it's the greatest value ever, and you might be right on that trade, but then you can't do anything with it. You're long the stock, and it just goes poof because the government doesn't want you to have any profit in that. That's the problem these these things have. Now, at some point, I guess it gets washed out. You can maybe trade it. I think Tim's thought of trading the ADRs in Hong Kong is probably a safer way. But to me, if all you're trying to do is play the growth in China – then you're probably better off playing it through commodities, maybe playing it through Brazil, because we know that China's cutting rates. We know that they're going to have a credit impulse. They've already told you that. Uh, But it's just really hard. In fact, to me, China equities are a no-touch. You have to play them tangentially. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Commodity house commotion. Is there trouble brewing beneath the surface? Our own Brian Kelly breaks down what's really going on. Plus, chips and a movie? NVIDIA surges, and AMC goes digging for gold. Grab your popcorn. The traders hit these moves next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Commodities have been red hot over the last month. Check out some of the massive moves higher in nickel, wheat, energy, and others in the last four weeks. But that's not necessarily good news for commodity trading houses. Our Brian Kelly is watching a couple of charts that suggest there might be a big blow up in this space. Um, BK, we've been talking about the volatility and how, pe- you know, for the most part, volatility causes people to be off sides on things. Yeah, but but you would think if you're a commodity trading house in a raging bull market for commodities, you should be killing it, right? I mean, this should be the best environment for you. But when you look at what's going on under the surface, it makes you go, hmm. So I have kind of three charts. The first one, is, there are three big commodity trading houses. There's Glencore, there's Gunvor, and there's Trafigura, right? And so the first one, is, the first chart I have is the credit default swaps on Glencore. They have been spiking. If things were actually great internally, there's no reason why you would want insurance on Glencore's bonds. 
Look at Gunvor bonds. They have actually dropped down to 75 cents on the dollar since the invasion of the Ukraine has started. And then Trafigura, same thing, down in the 70s as well. These are all signs that the bond market is concerned about their balance sheet. So let's break it down. What am I talking about here? So what these three commodity houses do is they buy physical commodities and then they ship it around the world. Sometimes they'll hedge via futures, but let's take a look at a, if they buy a big oil taker, a VLCC, if, that, if you buy a VLCC, very large crude carrier, that's about $100 million. So now you don't want to have $100 million just laid out. You now take that crude and that, that boat that you bought and you use it as collateral to fund, fund your business. Now sanctions come in. That $100 million, you can't sell that oil anywhere. So therefore, your collateral has just taken a massive haircut. This reminds me very much of what happened in 2008 with mortgages. Everybody had levered up. They were using mortgages as collateral. All of a sudden, there were defaults on mortgages, and that collateral went not to zero, but dropped, and you had this liquidity crisis and this problem. So when I look at what's going on here, and you see something like what happened with LME and the nickel trade, right? You see that? All of a sudden, the LME says, hey, we're going to cancel trades. To me, that's another sign that there is something underneath the surface here that is just not right. My guess is there's a liquidity problem there. All this collateral has been cut maybe by 30%, maybe by a half. I don't know. And now all these commodity houses are scrambling to raise capital so that they can actually meet all these kind of margin calls and they can meet their liquidity crisis. That is what I think is going on. It hasn't manifested itself on the rest of the market, but I do think it's something you really need to keep an eye on here because it's one of those things that you can just like that turn into a big crisis. And I guess it's the, it's the part about scrambling for capital in terms of transmission mechanism, right, to the other parts of the market. If they right. go into the commercial paper market, for instance, to try and meet their funding needs, Guy, we should the- theoretically be able to see it through that. You would think. I mean, the LME is older than I am, which is hard to believe. And they, you know, think about it. They stopped trading on the nickel. First time I think that's ever happened. And Tim talks about things like this all the time. We talk about two, three sigma events, standard deviation events. This was nickel was at 30, three zero. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. Um, it's really interesting. I think BK's onto something. I don't know who that Gondor guy is. Thought he was in like uh, uh, which one of those movies, Harry Potter or the other one with the ring. That's neither here nor there. I'll tell you something, though. It just goes to show you how valuable a company like CME is who continues just to sort of roll right along through these very difficult, volatile times. BK, uh, you probably saw a story about a 2 or $3 billion investment. I don't even know what instrument it would be that Blackstone was thinking of making in Trafigura. Does that sort of solve the problem? Are we looking at a long-term capital kind of, I don't know, healing of the market? Right. So that, that is the ultimate solution, right? So a lot of people thought when Black, uh, Blackstone did that, um, that they were just, that Traffic Euro was going to lever up on their commodities positions. I think it was to fill a hole. The unknown is how big is the hole in every place else. Now, the solution, as you mentioned, you simply just print enough dollars and give it to the commodity houses and everything's fine. But I think you just need to be aware, the bond market's telling you, particularly with Glencore and the bonds, they're telling you that there is still something not right under the surface. Tim, just quickly, does this raise uh, red flags for you? 
Well, Brian's right. And, and we've we've talked about also, I, I think it's more the hedge funds on the other side. I, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the Blackstone dynamic, we talk about when the Fed is actually providing uh, dollar swap lines at times. And, and this is what I think you know, they, they will be doing more of. Um, and I think this is ultimately where the trading houses are, are going to need because they have folks that can't make payments. And, and, and ultimately, I think that's their biggest issue. I, I look at, at Glencore's move. It's up 85 percent in, in, you know, in, in less than a year. And, and it's pulled back a Aggressively in the last few days, along with underlying commodities, but it is a company that generates massive free cash flow. So it, it trades about one times EV EBITDA. It generates about, you know, is a, roughly a 45% free cash flow yield. Uh, and I, I think actually commodity prices are going to continue to go higher, folks. I think this is a, buy, a pullback to buy. You know, copper prices spike 10%. They're back down 10%. Um, I think this is an interesting place to buy oil. Uh, but I, I get it. This is a smart discussion that we're having because there's no question when you create this kind of disruption, even mm-hmm. folks who seemingly should be in a good place, I would almost think you're, you're selling that CDS uh, to, to cover the other side of being long the company. Hmm. All right. Coming up, AMC goes for gold, the theater chain making an unusual buy. So what's behind this move? We're digging into that one next. Plus, semi-surge shares of NVIDIA jumping after its recent slide. But are there more gains ahead? We've got the details next. Fast Money is back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. NVIDIA changing course today. The chipmaker ending the day up nearly 8%, ending a three-day slide. So far this year, the stock is down over 21%. Guy, you flagged this one. I believe that uh, February 16th was a Wednesday. I mentioned that because we were on hiatus for the Olympics, rightly so. But that day, NVIDIA reported a great fourth quarter. Yes, great. And then they guided revenue higher to the top end of the range for the first quarter. It was really a strong quarter, strong guide. The stock had sold off from the November highs in a meaningful way. But guess what? Stock was not able to rally. Good news, bad stock action. And we've seen it ever since. Today, Traded down to 213, reversed, closed higher. We haven't seen price action like that in a while. I think that augurs well for NVIDIA going forward here, Melms. All right, let's move on here. Major plot twist for AMC in a headline. No one expected to wake up to this morning. The movie theater chain paying nearly $28 million in cash for about a 22% stake in a small Nevada-based gold miner, Highcroft Mining. For a company that was struggling to stay alive not that long ago, is this the best use of cash right now? And not just struggling, who has loads of debt at very, very, very high interest rates, invests in a recently despacked company that is trading well below, obviously, its spec price. Karen, you are digging into this. Uh, and the plot even thickens when you take a look at who the top holders of this stock are, who's involved here. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is crazy. If you remember, um, Mudrick, is that it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mudrick owns 40% of this company. Mudrick had at what was at one time a great trade with AMC where they bought a convert and they were allowed to immediately exercise the convert, sell the stock. They made a bunch of money and then went short and I think maybe lost that money. So I don't know where they ended up on AMC. This is just astounding to me, though, that they would use the, I understand they have a cash pile. They also have a giant pile of debt. 
And some of this debt is trading. There's a there's a I think it's 25 or 26 is the maturity. 10 percent coupon. It trades at 80 some odd cents on the dollar, yielding almost 15 percent. I would think maybe they'd want to buy that back before they do this. It's so crazy to me. The other thing, if you think they're going to, you know, you get a quick they were probably expecting a quick pop, which the stock really it did at the open a little yeah. bit, but by the end of the day, really didn't. I don't think they're going to do it for a flip. They couldn't do that. They would owe short swing profits, so they couldn't even keep the profit. I think they're in it for the construction in the long haul. I, I find it so astounding. I can't. I don't even know what to do with it. It's crazy that they would think this is what I just imagine what that board meeting was like. Here, here's what I think we should do. They're all yes, that's good. Let's do it. I, I don't I don't understand. Right. I mean, Karen and I probably spent, I don't know, 20 <laughs> minutes on the phone just marveling over this deal, wondering why you would possibly do it. But let's let's just play, you know, play devil's advocate here. Let's say AMC wanted to diversify its portfolio, uh, some sort of economic hedge here and, and have some sort of gold in their portfolio. Why would you buy a miner that traded? What was it like 30 cents a month ago? Um, why not just gold futures or buy a couple bars of gold and stick in the boardroom, Tim? I mean, it, there's so many questions here. It, it's it, it sounds like the company's been taken over by meme stock traders um, <laughs> who, who this is exactly what they would do. Uh, I mean, this is this is a clown show. And, and every time they have one of these announcements, folks, um, and I'm talking to the investors that, that chase these things, please. Uh, the stock ends up lower uh, within two weeks, significantly lower. In other words, these have been whipsaw events. Every Bitcoin announcement, e- e- everything that, that talks about crypto, you know, it's, this is another one. And of course it's gold. Gold, which is rallied. Gold, which is hot. Um, and, and at a time, why, you know, I don't know also where uh, a $30 million investment, when you look at at least relative to market cap too, this doesn't move the needle. They have no edge. Um, I, 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 this is disappointing to me. And, and these headlines are, are troubling. Well, they spent 20-something million dollars, and they got a almost 7% pop on the stock guy. That's not bad for a day's work. <laughs> for now. If they wanted to diversify their core business, they should have bought Tim's DVD collection. I mean, that'll give them some <laughs> diversification. I know Top Gun is first and foremost. Should be, by the way. I mean, and Tim's right. If they want to get yeah. in the gold business, do what Palantir did, buy gold bars. I don't know what they call it when people drift away from the style. I think they call it something. Mel, you might be able to help me with that. I think it's style called drift. <laughs> style drift. Style drift. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to put this That's under the it. category of exactly that. Although Palantir is doing SPACs, too, buying SPACs. So <laughs> it's an interesting one to cite. Uh, coming up, the S&P snaps a three-day losing streak. The Dow jumps 600 points and tech stocks bounce back. Up next, we'll meet a new face here on Fast Money who, who's got a hair company hair care company for the fellas on our shopping list. <laughs> and in honor of Women's History Month, CNBC is launching a special digital series tonight called Women and Wealth, featuring our very own Karen Feinerman. Go to the CNBC Twitter account at 8 p.m. to listen. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets staging a strong rebound today after three straight days of losses. But with all the uncertainty hanging over investors, how should you navigate the moves? Our next guest has got two themes she's playing. Let's bring in Kane Anderson, Rudnick Portfolio Manager and Senior Research Analyst Julie Beal, a new face to the CNBC, pro, to the CNBC family. Um, and Julie, one thing that you're looking at is fundamentals over forecast. That makes a lot of sense. What's the backdrop that you're seeing right now? So I think when we look at the global economy, there are just so many uncertainties that pop up every single day. And there are things that we couldn't have predicted far beyond that. 
I think we have all gotten very attached to our fancy Excel models and our dot plots and our forecasts. And frankly, you know, I think you can throw them all out the window because it's just not possible to predict where things are going. Why not instead focus on being more of a business analyst and finding really strong, proven, durable business models? Because you can go back historically and see, hey, how is this company performed in a financial crisis? How is this company performed in an oil crisis? And when you do that, then you have a lot more certainty that they're going to mm-hmm. be able to weather that. Yeah. And we've seen sort of a comeuppance for a lot of the companies, and I'm thinking mostly the fintech space, that have not operated in any of those environments. And we're seeing it reflected in the stocks right now. Julie, I want to get to your, to your picks here that you're bringing to us. Fair Isaac is the first one. What do you like about it? You know, I think with Fair Isaac, what's nice about this business is it's very durable, right? It does well in in challenging economy, but it also has leverage to an improving economy as well. And the fact that if the you know if the economy is stronger than we expect, they're going to be more people pulling scores. So I like that there is a certain floor to that business. It has a certain enterprise um, ex- uh, focus and exposure as well. But it so it has earning stability, and that's what I'm really trying to focus on here. So that's what I like about Fair Isaac. And then a company like Jack Henry, you know, I would look at that business as one that's obviously exposed to financials, right? They have they provide software for small and mid cap banks. If you look at that business through the financial crisis, it's like it didn't happen. That's the type of business that I think is really worth owning when you have this level of uncertainty. So it sounds like you're really going for the more domestic plays, ones that are not as exposed to international headwinds. I think there's a lot to be said for small being beautiful, right? Especially when we're talking about software names, ones that have kind of a specific niche that they've carved out and they're just attacking that market. You know, there's tends to be less competition. So we look for ones that have high barriers to entry. But generally speaking, I like software businesses that have a lot of recurring revenue, right? Because that allows them to plan ahead of time for their costs and then their earnings have less variability. Julie, great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Would you go small, Guy? Small, I mean, if you think inflation, and we know inflation is here. I'm not going to say if you think inflation is here. But in general, small caps don't have as much of an ability to pass along price increases and deal with inflationary pressures as some of the larger cap stocks. Listen, I don't know Isaac, Jack, or Henry, but I'll say this about Jack Henry. You look at their last quarter they reported a month or so ago. They have 25% operating margins, very good. Um, 12, 13% EPS growth. The one caveat is it trades around 32 times next year's numbers. But you know what? Maybe for a company like that, it's justified. So I'm never one to go small, but in this case, I will go small. It's actually not that small, right? 12 or $13 billion. I, I agree. I was thinking, wow, at 30 times, it's kind of expensive. But if I look at it, on a P, the PE has been a lot higher than that. So it's not so expensive to itself. It may mm-hmm. be relative to the market, but that one's sort of interesting to me. All right. Coming up, strong foundation. KB Home jumping ahead of some key housing data tomorrow. And one option trader is betting this is only the beginning. we got the details next. Don't go anywhere. Back in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of CrowdStrike. Catch the full exclusive interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. And don't forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox at the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at cnbc.com slash join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. 
Meantime, check out KB Home. Catching a bit today. Uh, the stock is still down nearly 18 percent so far this year. But at least one whale in the options market is betting that today's gains are a sign of better things to come. Mike Coe joins us with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. KB Homes, it traded about two times its average daily call volume, calls outpacing puts by about four to one. The most active options were the March 36 calls. We saw a couple thousand of those trading for about $1.14 apiece. Obviously, buyers of those calls are expecting that the stock could be at least 3% higher by the end of the week. Some other home builders also seeing some unusual volume. We saw DR Horton trading unusual call volume as well. Lennar, which reports tomorrow, did not, but it is implying a pretty big move, about 7.5% by week's end. One would think, Brian Kelly, that rising rates aren't good for home building stocks and, and maybe in some respects they but in other respects, some people say that actually rising rates gets people off the sidelines and, and more active in the market. I don't know how much more active you can be in this market, but. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you have seen a little bit of that, right, that people are trying to uh, get get by their house uh, faster than possible. A lot of people want maybe even a doghouse for whatever that was in the background. <laughs> but in the general, in general, <laughs> I think that the home builders are challenged over the next six to 12 months. Rising rates, rising costs. Look at lumber prices. Look at copper prices. I think it's going to be very tough to be a home builder in the next year or two. For the record, that was Guy's dog. Um, Tim, what do you say about home builders? <laughs> I wonder if Guy's dog is a Jack Henry Russell Terrier. Um, I, I think you have a case here where where home builders don't really bottom until we start to see the end of a, of a Fed cycle here. I, I also I'm going to say this over and over again. We're we're at peak credit spreads uh, and we're at peak household balance sheet. Things only get worse from here. Housing affordability gets more difficult in a higher rate environment. I don't see home builders turning around. They've got decent order books. They have very good balance sheets. They've had a good run. Uh, although of late, obviously priced in all of these things, and they still will. All right. Thank you, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we got your final trades. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Hard for me to see commodities pulling back substantially from here and the pullback of almost 10% in the last four or five days in BHP Bilton. Iron ore, uh, coke and coal, steel prices are going higher. Uh, diversified metals going higher. BK, Brian Kelly. Well, you know what? Metals are where I'm at, too. FCX, Freeport Mac, get both copper and that other shiny metal that AMC likes, gold. <laughs> Guy Adami. I can smell the fast fire from here, Melms, but I think you're going to get a 15 Ooh. to 20% rally in Alibaba from these wow. levels. Karen. Yeah, name we haven't talked about in a while. TJX, uh, I think that once we see Omicron reopen, which will be mostly in this next quarter that they announced, we will really start to see some good earnings here. So TJX, all right, my name. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.